This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In this segment, we're talking with Stuart Zuckerman, who went to UBC, got his law degree from UBC uh, some almost 29 years ago. Uh, That's what he studies is family law. Uh, That's what we're going to talk about in in this segment, the collaborative divorce process as well, which I think is an important sort of piece to add into it. And, uh, of course, there's so many... Um, I mean, statistically, the number of people that uh, face divorce and all that kind of stuff, they're just crazy numbers these days. But I know that Blair's got a very specific question to start things off with. First of all, thanks so much for joining us, Stuart. Stuart, you and I have, have spoken before because quite often, you know, there's an intersection between, you know, relationships break down and there's a lot of, you know, debt or hangovers that, that can really accrue to each of the, the parties there. So I see it from a bankruptcy or a proposal point of view. Um, but I know, Stuart, there's been a big change in the law, and this is going back to about 2013. 13. So you might say, well, that's been a while ago. But I just know in my discussions with folks, people still don't seem to be aware of some of the really key differences that changed. So I wonder if we can start there. Can you take me through, um, you know, the new Family Law Act, and new being in 2013, but what are some of the main changes there and what do people need to be aware of? Sure. So the main change to be aware of uh, is when that act came into force in 2013, replacing the Family Relations Act. New provisions uh, were applied to common law couples to deal with assets and debts and to treat common law couples the same way that married couples are treated. Um, and so uh, a common law spouse um, is defined in the act as, as two people of any sex being in a spousal-like relationship for a period of two years or more. So once you're living with somebody for two years or more, they can be called your common law spouse. And as soon as that happens, they may have uh, once they become a common law spouse, they have a right to uh, 50% of the growth in equity of any assets that their partner owned from the date of cohabitation forward. Um, and their partner, of course, has the same right to an interest of 50% interest in the growth of that person's and the claiming person's uh, assets growth, equity growth from the date of cohabitation forward. And similarly, debts from the date of cohabitation forward of either either party uh, can be uh, divided 50-50 between the two spouses. And when, when you're trying to figure out whether someone is a common law spouse or not, you look at um, uh, different factors. The court has a discretion to determine that, but things like whether they share their finances with a joint with joint bank accounts or not, whether they one party cooked or cleaned for the other, when, whether one party took care of the other, whether the couple presented themselves in social settings as being exclusive, that they weren't, neither of them were seeing other people, and if that was known publicly, all of those are indicators that the, that the two people are common-law spouses or are acting in a spousal-like relationship. So it sounds like just pure living together isn't necessarily determinative. You could be common-law if you do all those other factors, but you still maintain separate residences. Would that be that, that, right. That's right. You know, if you're if it's a, if a boyfriend and girlfriend maintain their separate residences and one goes back and forth between the residences, he could argue or she could argue that they're not a common law spouse because they're not living together um, in the same uh, place. But there are cases where uh, where the you know a, a couple may have 
this type of relationship went on for 10 years, um, and let's say the husband had a separate condo that he occasionally went to, but uh, nonetheless, the parties were exclusive to each other. They, the husband supported the, the, the wife, even, even though they're not married, I'm calling them husband and wife, um, and the court found that they were in a common law relationship despite the two residences. So it really depends on the nature of the relationship and, and the issue of exclusivity, whether the parties are seeing other people. Um, if, they're, if, they're, if they've made a commitment to each other to, to not see other people, um, then they may be in a common law relationship, even in some cases where there's no intercourse taking place, no sexual activity taking place, so that the couple um, are together, they're financially supporting each other, they're supporting each other through cooking and cleaning, but there's no sexual relationship, that could still lead to a common law relationship, because the couple is, has intertwined uh, other aspects of their lives and are living together. And how big of a change was that, Stuart? So b- before 2013, was common law even you know a thing, so to, so to speak? Were there any so, protections? So, yeah, before 2013, um, a common law spouse, someone who lived with someone for more than two years, only had their automatic presumpt- presumed right to claim spousal support under the Family Law Act. You could, under the Family Relations Act, you were able to claim spousal support. But in order to claim a property interest in the other party's um, uh, property, that was much more complicated. You had to launch something called a, a, a constructive trust lawsuit or an unjust enrichment lawsuit, and you had to prove every contribution you made during the relationship that added value to the to the equity of the property that you were making a claim against, and then deduct from that any um, bon- any benefits that you received during the relationship. And what was left often was a very small claim, and it was very expensive to bring those claims, so common law spouses were often shut out of the courts. Once they made the new Family Law Act in 2013, it became an automatic presumption that regardless of any contribution, so, so let me give you an example, you know, a, 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 we'll call it John and Mary. John um, meets Mary, he moves, she moves into his home that he owned before he ever met her, and let's say the home had a million dollars equity before he ever met her, and this is 20 years ago, a nice home in Vancouver worth a million bucks or a million in equity, and they, they stay together for the next 10 years, and over those 10 years you know, John earns over 100000 a year, so he earns over a million dollars. Mary doesn't work at all, no children. Mary stays home for those 10 years, and, and at the end of 10 years, the house is now worth $3 million. So the house has gone up by two million dollars from the date of cohabitation to the date that the parties separate and Mary has not contributed a single penny to the equity in the house. John's paid all the bills for both parties. At the end of their relationship, Mary will have a claim to to one million dollars, essentially half of the two million dollar gain in equity. The home went up from one million to three million dollars. It's gone up two million dollars during the time they're together. She has an automatic presumed right to half of the gain, which is a million dollars. The only thing John can do under the Act is he can argue for something called a substantial unfairness. If he can establish to the court that it's substantially unfair for Mary to get half of the equity growth, then then that can be overturned. But I must tell you that that. You know, under the old Act, under the Family Relations Act, there was a provision about unfairness, and it took a lot of evidence to establish unfairness to get something other than a 50-50 division under the old Act. But now it's much harder because they added the word substantial unfairness, and, and constitutional interpretation says you must give meaning to every word in a statute. So the fact that the word substantial has been added to the word unfairness means it has to be something much more than just unfair for the court to ignore the automatic presumption under the Act for a 50-50 
50 division to be given to both parties. So it's going to be very hard for people to get away from the 50-50 provision on the basis of non-contribution or things of that nature. And I liked, or or not that I need to defend Mary in this situation, but if she looked after the house and cleaned it and cooked and, and made sure there was groceries and all those kinds of things, those are the kinds of things that give Mary this, um, additional or not additional but kind of that that presence within that agreement or that uh the breaking up of the uh, relationship am i right about that or well well the important thing to to realize here is that the that that this entitlement is actually regardless of any contribution by mary it used to be I that see. mary under the old act mary would have to prove every contribution she made in order to earn an interest in the home now the court says even if she made no contribution whatsoever the starting presumption when they show up on the first day of court when they show up the court is going to look at the owner, John, and say, the law tells me, John, that Mary is automatically entitled to 50% of the increase in equity from the date you started living together to the date you separated, um, unless you can convince me that that would be substantially unfair. Um, and so even if Mary didn't lift a finger, if Mary was the laziest housewife in the world and just stayed home with her feet up eating bonbons, she would have an automatic entitlement to 50% of the growth in the equity. So it's not dependent on her having taken care of the home or cleaned or, or done any or raised children or anything else. Okay. Um, just a quick question again for me. Does that sound right to you or fair to you? Or is that a, is that a, good, um, is that a good policy to have? Because I don't know. I'm just I, wondering. And I, like, and I like Mary. I like the life she's got going on, but I'm just not too sure if, it's, if that's I, sort I of good. I can tell you that it's been, I, you know, the, the law has been in place since 2013, and I have had many clients who've been shocked at the entitlement of their girlfriends. So I'm putting that word girlfriends in quotes. If their partner of more than two years has, has now become their common law spouse, they thought that because they didn't marry, they were protected, that, yeah. their, that their, the equity in the home was theirs, and they were quite shocked to discover that their girlfriend or former fiance boyfriend, or common-law right? spouse has yeah. this huge claim, because in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, property values have escalated tremendously over the last, you know, from 2013 till now, properties have gone up probably over 200% or something, or 100%. Oh, yeah. And you don't have so, to be in a big house. You could be in, a like, a one-bedroom right. condo and kits, and all of a sudden it's worth... Mm-hmm. Now, there, there have been some decisions that have come out from, our, from the Supreme Court that have given less than 50% in certain circumstances. So that when the court looks at a situation, if it's clear that, for example, let's say the parties maintain complete separate finances um, intentionally, the, the, you know, the, the, the John didn't trust Mary and didn't want her involved in any of his bank accounts, so he kept his account separate, Mary kept her account separate, um, and John kept track of the bills he paid, and let's say Mary paid for her own vacations. If the parties lived independent financial lives, that may be a factor that the court can look at on substantial unfairness to say this was not within the contemplation of the parties and it would be substantially unfair because the way they maintain their finances, um, it didn't work that way. Let's say, for example, at year five, uh, the roof collapsed, and even though Mary had had a job, let's say, and she was working, um, and she kept her money in her own accounts, that she refused to help John pay for the roof repair, and John had to go out and get a loan to repair the roof and then pay the loan off. That would be, a, that would be evidence to show that the parties never had the intention of sharing the equity. So there are always, you know, as a lawyer, and especially as a trial lawyer, I can tell you every trial I go to, it's a, it's a storytelling exercise, it's, and, and every trial turns on its own uh, facts. Even though the law may say one thing, you can, judges are always focused on and you can always present your your evidence and, and convince a judge one way or the other what is reasonable and what is fair. But the, the starting presumption of the law is now set to protect 
common law spouses so that they don't have to prove what contributions they made. There's just an automatic presumption that they're entitled without the necessity of proof. Yeah, and this is very interesting stuff, Stuart. We're just down to about our, our last minute or so. I wonder if you, if you can touch on the division of debts, because very often in here uh, on the show, I'm telling people you marry somebody, you don't marry their debts, Visa or MasterCard can't collect from you if your husband or wife incurs a debt, but how does that work when the relationship dissolves? So you're correct, as between the as between the couple and their creditors, the creditors cannot sue Mary for John's debts or John for Mary's debts. That's that's true. But under the Family Law Act, John and Mary, just same as their assets, are equally liable to each other for 50% of the growth in either party's debts from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation. Now, the court will look at how the debts were incurred, and usually there's this qualifier that the debt, uh, presumed qualifier that the debt has to be incurred for a family purpose. So debts for clothing or eating out or groceries or gas or regular living expenses would all be considered debts for a family purpose. Whereas if John went on a bender to Las Vegas and lost, you know, 10000 on his credit card gambling, that's not a debt that the court would divide between the parties, even though it was incurred during the relationship. Uh, mind you, if John and Mary together went to Las Vegas and lost, 10000 on John's credit card gambling, and they were both participating in that loss, uh, in that gambling event, then it would be, um, the, the liability would be shared between them, and it would come out of their uh, otherwise entitlement of the share of the assets, so the, the court would adjust the, the asset share that each party gets, the equity out of the home, for example, would be adjusted to ensure that the parties are paying that debt 50-50 between them. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us in studio is Rachel Riddell from Sands & Associates, an experienced estate manager and insolvency counselor. So just before I continue with your bio, you're somebody that I would see as as part of my team if I was coming to Sands to figure out my debt situation. Yep. Exactly, yeah. Excellent. Boy, you're going to be in good hands because Rachel uses educational and a very supportive approach. She provides all Sands and Associates clients. She works with all the information that you need to better understand options for resolving your debt situation. And this is Rachel's quote, helping people who are facing financial difficulty achieve a financial fresh fresh start is always my goal. So how does someone like you... Because I feel, I mean, you're young, uh, or you look young, certainly to me. <laughs> Beautiful. I wish this was television. You, uh, How did you get into the business? Um, so my dad was an insolvency trustee mm. back in the day. Um, I played water polo for the national team for about 15 years. We're talking about the Canadian national team? Yeah. Wow. So once I retired from that, I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do with my career path. Um, So my dad suggested that uh, insolvency might be something I'm interested in. Um, I have a degree from Concordia University in sociology. I was going to say because part of the your uh, what what I told the folks about you is a counselor, and so you'd have to have you'd have to have some area of expertise in that. Yeah, no, I'm really um, just outside of work. I'm interested in people and listening to their issues and helping them try to find a solution to it. So. I mean, working at Sands is sort of the perfect fit. It it ties into my degree in sociology, and I did um, a business diploma as well. So there's some aspects of that that help out as well with my day to day job. Wonderful. 
And I know that Blair is your boss, yes. but I'm still going to ask you. My privilege. Yep. Besides, besides working with Blair, what is the most enjoyable part of your job? Yeah, no, I love the people I work with, and it sounds is a great company. Um, but in terms of um, what I enjoy about my job is just the aspect of helping people uh, feel a sense of relief that there is a solution to their financial difficulties. Um, it's sort of as, a, as if you can see, like, sometimes the light come back into people's eyes, that, you know, that their financial stress, all the sleepless nights, that um, it will finally come to an end. We've talked to... Um a number of people over the year mm-hmm. uh, who have who have uh, come out the other side of either a, a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, and the relief that they talk about, uh, comparing it to when they walked in the door with all sorts of uh, being so unsure and uncertain about the future. And some of them terrified even of, of coming to that meeting, right? We have people, Rachel, you know this, who'll book a meeting and maybe three times they don't feel like they can even show up. They're so scared and worried about it, right? Yeah, and then coming out that other end. Uh, it must be very gratifying to do this work. Yeah, and I think just that keyword is relief. Usually no one wants to be in our office and they're hesitant and I think they think they're going to come in and get scolded or we're going to be judgmental. Um, or sort of, you know, blame them for being in the financial situation sure. they are, which isn't the case at all. Yeah. How, how did you make that mistake, right? Exactly. What were you thinking? I, I don't say that in my meetings. I know you don't say no. that either, right? No, and just but, <laughs> but people are thinking that, right? It's yeah. uh, guilt ridden, yeah, and and shameful, right? That they're in this predicament because who knows how big their predicament is or or how small it is, but yeah. A lot of emotional stuff connected to it. Yeah, and I think relief is just the key word that usually we hear at the end of every meeting is that, you know, people wish they didn't wait as long as they did before coming in because just after that 45 minutes or an hour, they're already feeling that sense of relief that there is a solution. To all, to all, to all that's been bothering them for so long. And, and we've, we've talked uh, about statistics of the number of people who lose sleep and f- suffer physically as a result of, of being overwhelmed by debt and and financial situations. So, yeah, that relief would be enormous. Yeah. And Rachel, I wonder if you can give the the listeners a sense of what could a client expect when they come in and meet with you? What's your approach? Um, Say it's the first meeting, you've never seen the person before, uh, they've booked in to meet with you. What should they expect when they walk in the door, you introduce yourself? What happens next? Yeah, like I was just saying, like I take a very empathetic and non-judgmental approach Um, when I'm meeting with people, I like to usually spend the first 10 to 15 minutes of the meeting getting to know the person and sort of what brought them into our office. Um, And then, as you said earlier, like my goal is always make sure they fully understand what their options are and hopefully feel that sense of relief by the time the meeting's over. Excellent. And what type of things would you cover in in the first meeting? You know, if someone's listening and think, oh my God, I've got to have all my financial life ready to lay out in front of me before I walk in the door. Um, What's your advice? You said before, you know, people worry about waiting too long. So obviously it's come sooner maybe than you think. But what type of information, what type of questions do you get into in that first meeting? Yeah, so the first meeting is pretty much just a conversation. We'll talk about your income, your assets, who you're owing. Um, We typically just hope that they know that information. But if they don't, it's just so we can also explain what a consumer proposal is in a bankruptcy. Um, and then we always have time later on to gather that necessary information. But that first meeting is just a general conversation just to hear about what's going on um, in their life and explaining what we can do to possibly help them. 
And I'm sure just even discussing a consumer proposal, uh, because it was a brand new term for me when I first started working with Blair, and so interesting and so valuable. What an amazing mechanism for folks to use. Uh, But a lot of people don't have a clue. No, and that's the same, you know, sort of reaction that people have when they come in and they, I think they think bankruptcy is their only option. And I mean, it's a great option if it is your only option. But um, like you said, the consumer proposal, I think people are usually quite surprised with what their monthly payment is compared to what they've been trying to pay minimum payments every month. Yeah, and bankruptcy is such a, we've talked about this before as well, it's such a scary word for Mm -hmm. folks. Yeah, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of ideas about it that aren't true. But anytime we can help somebody avoid a bankruptcy, you know, that, that's a pretty successful day as well. And maybe segueing into that a little bit, Rachel, what are the biggest misconceptions or fears you find people have when they come to see you? We're down to just our last couple minutes here. Yeah, so I think just what I was saying earlier is that we're going to be judgmental and scold mm-hmm. them, um, which isn't the case at all. Um, and also that we're going to call their employer. Um, which isn't which isn't the case unless their wages are being garnished but we don't call everyone's employer and let them know and i think that's a question i get quite often is oh is my boss going to know that i'm going through this yeah, I get asked about the paper. So when am I on the front page? Well, not for this, never. So hopefully if you achieve something great, you'll be there. But yeah, there's no bankruptcies in the papers less than 1%, right? It right. Just, just doesn't happen. Oh, right. I never even would have thought of that. But of course, people, yeah. that would be, be a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, would you, is there, there, is there pieces of your, of your uh, day-to-day work life that um, must be so gratifying for yourself to experience yeah. With folks. Yeah, I think just even that when you initially meet the stranger who's waiting for you in the lobby and then they come in and they think you're going to have this very maybe aggressive approach, mm-hmm. um, just sort of that connection with them once you can, you know, deliver them with this, it is life-changing information for them. And just sort of um, the connection you make with people um, after they find out that, you know, that we are there to be helpful and that there is, um, there can be an end to their financial difficulties. So it's nice to connect with people that way who are going and struggling through such a tough time. That's really nice. And, you know, I just listening to Rachel talk, it's so important to have um, folks uh, on your team that are so empathetic Mm -hmm. for people because it is scary. It is frightening. And it's all of that that we've already talked about when people are walking in the door, don't have a clue. And there's such a negative connotation with it all that you can't help but feel bad. And that's the whole ethos of, of the firm here is, you know, we believe that anybody could face financial difficulties at any time. It could be me, it could be anybody here. So, you know, why wouldn't we treat everybody with the utmost of compassion, respect, and empathy? Absolutely. Now, in closing, we've just got 20 seconds. Words of advice for anyone who's struggling listening to this and struggling with debt. I think that if you're struggling financially, um, and this isn't just a plug for Sands and Associates, but no, just, we can plug them. It's okay <laughs> to definitely to meet with an insolvency trustee. It's a free consultation, and just knowing your options, I think, as we've said over and over, will provide people with a lot of relief. Excellent. And if you'd like more information or want to just do some reading, go to sands-trustee.com. It's a terrific website, chock block full of great questions and great answers. If that's the thing that you need to then make the phone call uh, and make that uh, get that free consultation. And to, and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
on the line with us, Sanjeev Patro. He's an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law and Langley. Practice broadly based encompasses a whole bunch of areas like commercial and business litigation, builders liens, property disputes, estates, trust litigation. Man, Sanjeev, you've got it all going on in your practice. Well, it's, it's a diverse clientele, so the practice sort of reflects that. That's awesome. Uh, now, the uh, in the uh, in your bio, it's really cool to see that you clerked in the BC Court of Appeal as well, and that's always in, you always get an interesting perspective when you get to do something like that. Oh yes, that was the first job out of law school. It was uh, it was quite the education. I bet it was. I bet it was. So um, this uh, this segment is uh, we're just talking about I don't know just the different things that uh, you deal with as a lawyer or your practice deals with, and certainly of giving us a bit of an umbrella look on the first one, first question, um, because we're often seeing court cases in headlines all the time. But there's a whole bunch of things that go on that never are reported or never in the paper and never uh, the regular public gets to see. Is there sort of common types of disputes that, that you deal with or that lawyers in general deal with? Well, in terms of my personal practice, I think that the, the, the catch-all would be breach of contract claims, where one person says the other side either hasn't paid what is owed or did not fulfill their end of the bargain. But um, I think you see also a lot of disputes arising, arising from the, the breakdown of relationships, whether common law or formal marriages. That always seems to revolve around the division of family property and the parenting of minor children. And I'm seeing uh, an increasing number of disputes that involve how assets amassed over a lifetime are to be divvied up when someone passes on. So uh, with the tremendous increase in the number of blended families and late marriages, you know, sometimes second and third marriages, we see a lot of disputes between adult children and, and the spouses of the people their parents married or settled down with later in life. So all in all, I think it mostly comes down to money. You know, whether it's a business dispute, a family matter, or a claim against an estate, people usually seek out legal advice when there's a significant amount of uh, money at stake and and they're at loggerheads with someone else. I'm also thinking that it's a bit of a generational thing as well in terms of uh, baby boomers whose parents are passing or who have passed, and then there's going to be a whole bunch of us that are are dealing with different issues when it comes to our children. Would you would you say that that's a that's a fair observation oh i think absolutely you hit the nail on the head because i mean we just see in the in the lower mainland the tremendous increase in price of real estate so those are valuable assets and at the same time um you know people's incomes haven't kept up so the ability to pass on wealth or 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 claim something from a a parent's estate is is somewhat more critical if you're ever going to get yourself established in life Fair enough. And Sanjeev, I think it's really interesting on, on this show, we try to, you know, give our listeners some really valuable advice. And there's probably a lot of times when people have said, you know, I wish I could hire a lawyer about this and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think today's segment would be helpful for people to know, you know, when is it useful? Um, you know, when can you fight and win as opposed to when is something that's just not going to, um, you know, work to go forward with a lawyer. So you highlighted a couple of main areas of practice. I wonder if we were to talk about breach of contract. So for the average person listening, you know, what type of situations would give rise to them having an action for breach? Of contract. 
Well, I think that the uh, it's a really it's a good question because not every breach of a contract is really going to give you a, a reasonable basis to pursue something in court or, to, or, or talk to a lawyer. So I think importantly, if you've suffered the loss or if you're going to suffer a loss because of the way somebody else has acted on a contract and provided that uh, what they've done is, is outside of what was agreed upon or outside of the reasonable expectations of the parties, then you've got a claim there potentially. And, and it's important to go and talk to, the, talk to a lawyer early on uh, when you see this situation coming up, rather than later down the line when things may have gone too far. And, you know, sometimes an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So by seeing a lawyer, you know, the first kind of whiff of a bit of a breach, you've got more options than if you allow something to continue on. It might be that you've accepted, okay, I'm fine to continue on, even though someone's in breach of a contract. Is, is that correct, Sanjeev? I, I think that's about right. Uh, you know, you can shape the litigation or, or the dispute resolution process by, by taking some steps. Sometimes you can gather information when it's available to you, when, when things have gone too far and, and the rupture between, say, two people are, has, has really manifested itself. Um, you're not going to be able to get that information which might be helpful to your claim, establishing the evidence that you need to pr- prove something. Um, you know, people will clam up uh, as, as things progress. I was also thinking that it, uh, the idea that um, there might be other reasons for the breach going on, like it, it may not be it, what it appears to be, and then what's actually going on is two different things, like maybe there's, there's a, a, an illness or a problem or something that's getting in the way of somebody fulfilling the other side of the contract, and sort of asking those questions early, that just makes so much more sense, uh, be, just in case it is something that's a little more complicated or um, uh, emotional, or I can't quite think of the right word, but, you know, other than just very black and white breach of contract, I'm going after you because you're not fulfilling my, or, or the requirements or the or what I, my expectations. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense because people, you know, they're, and they're in a situation where they're safe, facing a, a, a claim for breach of contract or dealing with a claim for breach of contract, um, they sometimes have trouble turning the tables around and looking at the situation from the other side. Because when people make a deal or come to an agreement, they each had certain expectations of what what they wanted to get out of something. Both, both sides intend to get something out of it. Um, and, and, and having an idea as what the other side was expecting out of it can, can offer... Um, some guidance as to perhaps the way out. So if you figure that this person needs to get to 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 a position X or Y or get this result, um, maybe you can work with them to to resolve the breach, which gets you what you want or close to what you want, and, and still sees them uh, get the result that they need as well. And Sanjeev, let's say we've got a bit of a dispute. We think there's a breach of contract or in a business relationship, and we decide to hire legal counsel. What are the typical pitfalls that you would see as you go down the road um, that a client would need to be aware of? You could advise our listeners, if you're hiring legal counsel, be aware of X, Y, and Z. Well, I think I, think I touched on one the, uh, just a minute ago, and that's not seeking out or, or advice mm. at, the, at the get-go, at the earliest whiff of right. it. Right, too long. 
waiting too long. Um, and it makes such a difference. Knowing a bit about the strengths or weaknesses of a claim or their legal position can be helpful in providing perspective, shaping the way the dispute is handled. For example, if someone knows early on that their position is relatively weak, they may look proactively to strengthen by, uh, their position by, by taking some steps to gather helpful evidence or looking to negotiate a solution early on, recognizing that there's a significant potential for substantial legal costs or in the finding of liability against them. On the other hand, if someone knows early on that they're in a relatively strong position, they can negotiate from a position of strength and or know that they can pursue a claim more aggressively. I think another area where I see many people run into is when they're dealing with business and family. Mm-hmm. We, now, we imagine family, especially those who are close to us, to be reasonable, and we expect them to deal with us fairly. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. With family, people often do not properly document their dealings, whether they're loans from parents to their children or vice versa, agreements about joint purchases of property and the like. And unlike strangers, when it comes to family, people tend to be less forward-looking. So they don't look or think about what happens if the money is not repaid or this living situation doesn't under all under one big roof doesn't work out. People need to work, uh, think about that situation and how it might be unwind, money recovered, and that sort of thing. Um, we've only got, uh, I guess, four more minutes left in this segment. Uh, and I wanted to ask, um, I know for a fact that there's lots of other options for folks when there's an issue, when, when there's a legal issue that's arisen and, uh, and not going to court and not going uh, to a, into a, a courtroom to settle it. What are the other mechanisms that you found are, are the most helpful or, or as helpful for folks? Well, I mean, in my practice, I'm always willing to pick up the phone and talk to a lawyer on the other side to, to sound out um, their, their client's interest in, in negotiating uh, a, a settlement to a dispute. And then I think that there are all sorts of sort of pressure points in, in the litigation process before you file a claim, um, maybe after people have exchanged documents and conducted discoveries, and then right before a trial when you're going to know what your evidence is, you're going to have a good sense of what the other side's argument. So that makes it, those are sort of good points at which to, to discuss um, settlement with the other side. But outside of that, um, there is a process called mediation where a third mm-hmm. party Often an experienced lawyer with some training acts to facilitate a negotiation in a structured way. Um, you know, in, the me- in a mediation, the mediator will work with each side to get them to better understand the perspective and the other side's view of things. And often the mediator will act as a go-between, conveying messages and offers and providing advice as to how to move the negotiation forward. But at the end of the day, it's also important to keep in mind that the mediator has no po- power to force a negotiation to end in an agreement and uh, the process is voluntary voluntary so uh, if any side wants to walk away they're always free to do so and another uh, out of court uh, process is uh, arbitration and this is a private usually confidential process where uh, the people who are in a dispute submit uh, to uh, the authority of a, a third party usually retired judges or, or senior lawyers uh, with specific experience they agree on certain ground rules and a process and and essentially it it, it functions as sort of a private litigation so you can keep all of your disputes confidential. You can move the process forward faster. And, and when you're working in a sensitive or a delicate business area and you don't want, say, outside competitors to be able to access documents that might have been filed in a public court registry, uh, it's a good solution. 
Excellent. And Sanjeev, in the event that that doesn't work, the alternative dispute resolution, you know, arbitration, mediation, or just negotiating doesn't reach a conclusion, you've got to go to court. Um, I've dealt with a, a bunch of clients who just had no idea what they were essentially biting off in terms of cost implications. Is there anything you could give um, guidance to listeners if a dispute does proceed to court and knowing that there's incredible amounts of variables, but is there a sense of a ballpark cost implication, you know, to get to court, you're looking at X thousands of dollars or any type of guidance you can give the listeners of, you know, essentially encouraging people to negotiate rather than taking things to court? <laughs> well, Blair, that's a tough question. And uh-huh. I say it's tough because every dispute is unique. And, and I think the, the amount that people budget for uh, their legal expenses also has to take into account, from a practical perspective, what's at stake there. You know, it's, uh, I've often told clients that litigation is both an active and a reactive process. So I can do things to move a claim along or defend a claim, but how the other side reacts and what they do will have a direct impact on a client's legal fees. So I, I generally try to break down the different stages of litigation to, for clients and provide cost estimates for that. And, and, and so, for instance, drafting a, a claim to be filed in court might cost a, a thousand or two thousand dollars if it's straightforward, but it could cost you know many thousands of dollars if it's a complex claim involving a large amount of money and 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 some difficult areas of law. Um, I and, and Sajeev, I just want to wrap it up there because I think that's a really good place to leave this. Uh, because for folks that are wanting more information, uh, you're the guy to go and see. So we've been talking with Sanjeev Petro, a, an associate and senior litigator with Magellan Law in Langley, and uh, you can get a hold of him on his website, MagellanLaw.ca. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Blair, and we've, we've talked so much uh, on the show about the, uh, about the different ways people can get out of debt. Mm-hmm. Bankruptcy, consumer proposal, and all the ins and outs of that, which, which are great. Um, but I think sometimes we, I always forget or tend to shy away from like the cost because I'm never yeah. quite sure what it's going to cost somebody because it really is an individual thing, correct? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I have almost all clients will ask me that question. I never take it as an insult. You know, hey, how do you get paid? What's, yeah. in, it, what's in it for you? Because everybody you deal with, there's something in it for them. And as a trustee, yeah, we don't work for free. You don't. And your office, it's filled with professionals, people mm-hmm. who are experts in their own fields, whether it be the counseling, whether it be the person like yourself, the licensed uh, trustee who's going to go through everything piece by piece and gather the information and figure it all out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, good. I'm glad we're talking about this. How do you get paid? So what, let's talk about the cost. Let's talk about personal bankruptcy first. And what's the cost of filing uh, for personal bankruptcy? Yeah. So, so first off, before we even get there, you know, right off the top, if someone's struggling with debt, there's no charge to come and see us. So a trustee will spend time, will do at least two, if not three meetings, you know, to help you explore the whole situation. And very clearly, you don't pay a dime until you decide either you're going to do a bankruptcy or a proposal. And then the government kicks in and says what you have to pay. Everything is heavily regulated. I'll give you all the details on this segment. But just be aware, if you don't need the help of a trustee, a trustee still is going to spend a lot of time with you for no charge, give you a whole bunch of advice, help you figure out, navigate the waters a little bit and be a resource for you. Uh, But all that's at no charge for a consultation. Nice. Very good. Now, if it makes sense for you to file a personal bankruptcy, so I often get asked, you know, well, is bankruptcy subsidized by the government, the government kicks in some money or different things like that. 
And the answer is no. It's actually when I file a bankruptcy as a trustee, I need to pay the government money to actually file that bankruptcy. Um, so there's out-of-pocket costs, you know, right off the top, a trustee has to pay a filing fee. What it means for the individual is the cost of filing bankruptcy, it really comes into two categories of people, and it's all based on your income. So if you're considered low income, and low income in BC and across the country, it's a very low cutoff. It basically says if you're earning less than roughly $2,150 per month, after-tax take-home pay as a single person, you're considered low income. And if you go into bankruptcy as a low-income individual, you're just asked to pay the cost of the bankruptcy, which works out to $1,800, payable over a term of nine months. And that's a flat fee, that $1,800? Okay. That includes everything. So it includes the filing fee to register the bankruptcy in Canada, as I mentioned. Uh, It includes two financial counseling sessions, which are some of the most beneficial time you'll ever spend. You sit down one-on-one with our counselors, not a group session. We talk to you about budgeting, about rebuilding your credit after the bankruptcy, trying to make sure it's a one-time thing in your life. You come through the doors. So you get that included as well. Um, And then we also have to prepare and file your tax returns. So you'd normally be paying an accountant or maybe doing it yourself. But if you're in bankruptcy, the trustee is mandated by government to get you caught up on your taxes and file your tax returns for the year of the bankruptcy. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. And that's correct. Yeah. And the whole idea of that is there's a thing called the fresh start principle. And what it means is that when you finish a bankruptcy, it should be a fresh start. You shouldn't owe anybody any money. And the government, you know, you could owe the government money. Um, so making sure that if you got to doing your taxes in bankruptcy, all that debt gets included in a bankruptcy as well. Now, the other scenario for a bankruptcy, so as I mentioned, there's a scenario if you're low income, and that's a nine months, $1,800 arrangement, and normally the $200 a month is a lot less than the person is actually paying on interest or minimum payments each month, um, but still it can be a bit tough to afford, and you know we'll work with folks, we'll try to do a longer term payment plan if we have to. Now, if somebody is not low income, so the thing to keep in mind here is the cost and the duration of a bankruptcy, it doesn't matter at all based on the debt. So you're not held in bankruptcy longer because you ran up a million dollars in debt, and you don't get out of bankruptcy sooner because you only owed $5,000. It's not related at all to the amount of your debt. It's only related to your monthly income. So if you're not low income in Canada, meaning that you're earning more than roughly the $2,150 per month as a single person, bankruptcy runs for a year longer than the original nine months. So it runs for 21 months in total. I'm sorry, I just got confused because you talked about the amount of debt. It's not the time isn't determined by the amount of the debt. It's what your income is. That's right. And that's so key. And I know this is a confusing thing. So slow me down if I get if I go too far. Well, it is. So let's say I owe, I don't know. Pick a number, huge number, a big number. One hundred twenty thousand. Okay, yeah. that which is a pretty big number. Yeah. And my income is a thousand dollars, or let's say no, no, it's got to be over. It's got to be over. Let's say it's twenty five, three thousand dollars a month. Three thousand a month. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, and I'm going to file for personal bankruptcy. That's mm-hmm. my income is three thousand, and that's what my take home is, right. right? After tax. Yep. After tax. So, and I owe one hundred twenty five thousand. Is that what we said? Yeah. How. How does that work? That seems like a a short amount of time to pay off a huge amount of money, but I know I'm not paying it all off either, right? That's the whole point. That's the key. In bankruptcy, it's different than a proposal. In a proposal, you're paying a percentage of the debt back. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 40%, something like that. Fair enough, sure. In a bankruptcy, zero relation to the debt. Got it, okay. So when the debts are just so high, again, I've had some people with $500,000 assessments from CRA, they can't afford to pay off a third or a quarter of that. If they go into bankruptcy, it's the same bankruptcy as if they had owed $50,000. Got it. Not five hundred. Of course, 000. that makes complete sense to me now. Okay, I, I'm not so. Yeah, I, I, I'm less confused than I was. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. That's the point <laughs> of the show. Yay! Yeah. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> but now the, the whole 
the whole dichotomy here too is you've got the low income person who's finished bankruptcy in nine months yes. and then you've got somebody who's not low income that's essentially they're accrued a penalty so it's an extra year in bankruptcy they've got to spend a year longer being bankrupt and what that means is every month they've got to give the trustee a report on their earnings and verify their income um, you know there's not too many limitations in the jobs that they can take on but you know they couldn't be a lawyer administering trust funds or things like that so sure. there's a few limitations so you do want to get out of bankruptcy um, but the issue is that you're also requested or required to make payments based on your income. So if you're low income, you pay the $200 a month for nine months. If you're not low income, the government says, okay, low income guideline is $2,150. That's what we think you need to make ends meet. And it doesn't matter if your rent is $1,800. The government just says, here's the low income guideline. As soon as you exceed $2,150, you get to keep half of the extra and you have to pay half to the trustee. Okay. So coming to your example, I'm going to use a little bit rounder numbers just to make it easy for me. Yes. Uh, if you were earning $3,150, you're above $2,150 by $1,000. If you were in bankruptcy each month, you would pay half of that difference or $500. Okay. So for your $120,000 of tax debt, if you were in bankruptcy earning $3,150 per month, you'd pay back about $10,000 of that debt. You'd be discharged on the rest and you'd move on with your life in 21 months. I think that's, it's certainly more clear to me than it was before. I get it now. Mm -hmm. So what about, how does that differ then? Or should we just talk about a consumer proposal in and of itself, yeah. um, the differences? Yeah. So where a bankruptcy has no relation to the amount of your debt, it's only based on your income. Yes. A consumer proposal is completely related to the amount of your debt because the way a proposal works is we put together a scenario and analysis and we say if you were to file for bankruptcy based on that $120,000 of debt you'd pay back about $10,000 that's about an 8% recovery that's not good for your creditors and nobody can reject a bankruptcy in Canada your creditors can't say hey we don't want to accept this you keep paying us it's your right and they've got to accept that lower repayment right if you do a consumer proposal we offer them a greater recovery so maybe instead of $10,000 payable you offer them $20,000 over a period of a long Longer time right so at some percentage of the debt you know in this case maybe it's 15 or 20 percent of the debt usually it's in the range of 20 to 40 percent as a ballpark but you pay off that reduced percentage and you pay zero fees on top of that exactly zero fees zero interest what what you can afford to repay on the debt is enough everybody else gets paid out of that the trustee gets paid the government filing fees the counseling fees get paid so for an example I was helping a client a couple weeks ago um, he had fifty five thousand dollars of total debt we did a consumer proposal to reduce it to $23,400 in total. So he made monthly payments of about $650 over 36 months. The only thing he paid was when he signed the proposal, he made the first month's payment, and then he just kept paying after that per month. And you worked that out with them. Exactly. With that person like, and their creditors, right? Oh, you yeah. you propose, this is what we're going to pay you. Yeah. I'm representing Joe or Mary. Uh, this is what we're going to pay. And then they agree. Well, it's even better than that, Elaine, because if I was representing Joe or Mary, then the creditors might think I'm trying to pull a fast one. I'm an independent officer of the court. I'm in the middle. I'm saying, here's a fair settlement for everybody involved. Yes. And 95 to 99% of the time, people accept those Yeah, those absolutely. Proposals. And that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's important, though. I know that you that it needs to be absolutely clear. Absolutely. So Joe or Mary gets to pay back the debt, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. They feel better about themselves. Their creditors get an amount of money that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Exactly. I'll give you their phone number again. It's 1-800-661-3030. And their line, their byline is helping you get out of debt. And they'll help you figure out how to, the, the very best way to do that. If you'd like more information, you just want to read about things, sans-trustee.com is the website. And uh, get a hold of an office near you.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.